Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets, Murder in Idaho. Love Day edition! Happy Valentine's Day, guys. Happy Love Day. We are dropping in on you for a little Valentine's Day surprise. Because we, because we love you. Love you. Yeah. You're our Valentines. Yes. And this is not for all the lovers out there, but this is for all the lovers of hating Brian Koberger. Because, man, are we going to talk about him today? Yeah, we are. <laughs> Are you going to do anything fun for Valentine's Day with your Valentine, Russ? You know, <laughs> my Valentine, Russ. Uh, you know, we don't generally do stuff for Valentine's Day. We are going to go to lunch, child-free, on Tuesday. But we generally, I'm not like a big Valentine's person. I don't, I've never really been. And, you know, I'm like, don't waste money. I don't want, don't get me flowers. Don't get me a card. It's just like, I... We've talked about this before. I'm not a sentimental person. Like if someone gives me a card, I will read it and say thank you. And then it goes in the garbage. And I said, don't waste $5 because it's literally just like you giving me $5 to throw in the trash. Don't even get me a card. I don't need it. And he was like, well, the card I was looking at was $13. (laughs) And I said, why the fuck would you spend $13 on a card? For me, when you know, I mean, we've, we've been together for eight years. I don't even give other people cards. No, I don't get cards either. But here, here's the thing. My friend Megan, she does, she has the best idea for her and her husband's very first Valentine. She bought the biggest card that she could find in the whole world. This very obnoxious card. And she gets it out Uh and she just re-signs it every year. (laughs) That's a great idea. (laughs) Right? Yes. That's a great idea. I told Jacob, we can literally have a frozen pizza as long as I don't have to cook or clean. That is all I want. I don't want to have to think about what we're having for dinner, and I don't want to clean it up either. So I don't care. Tuesday is like, I got to take Tucker to the orthodontist. That's what Valentine's Day is. Well, see, when the kids, the kids are going to be with their dad this year, and but usually Uh they're with us on Valentine's Day, and I Mm -hmm. like to do a whole thing. Oh, I do a whole thing for my kids. Yeah. I go crazy for Valentine's Me Day. Me too. My kids, because my mom always did that. We yeah. always got like a Valentine's outfit and like a basket yes. of Valentine shit. And I do that for my kids. I still even do it for Tuck, and he's a teenager. Yeah, I do I just it. get him teenager shit. Yeah. Same yeah. here. And I decorate and I make a really fun dinner, something that we don't ever have. And mm-hmm. but when it's just going to be me and Jacob, who who I love. <laughs> It's just just frozen pizza up or whatever. I don't even care. I don't even right. do we even have to eat. <laughs> I'm fine with doing absolutely nothing. Right. Like going it's to bed at a reasonable hour and getting a delightful night's sleep. Happy Valentine's right. Day. All right. Ladies and gents, so much information has come out regarding the University of Idaho murder since we last talked about it um, back on, I think January 3rd is when we talked about it. And most of it, most of the new information is uh, regarding Brian Koberger. Ew. So we are going to talk about him. Let's do it. Mr. Deadeye himself. Ugh. Yes. Yep. So quick recap for you guys 
On January 3rd, Brian Koberger, the suspect charged in the fatal stabbings of four University of Idaho students, last appeared in court and he had his preliminary hearing date set for June 26th, which I think is so irritating that it's so far away. He hasn't even had a plea yet. I know. I know. It's like what I don't understand why they set out sentencing hearings so far as well. It drives me bananas anyway. I know. We should ask someone. So Koberger was arrested at his parents' house in Pennsylvania on December 30th. He faces four counts of felony first-degree murder and a felony burglary charge in the November 13th attack that took the lives of University of Idaho seniors Madison Mogan, 21, of Coeur d'Alene, and Kaylee Goncalves, 21, of Rathdrum, junior Zana Kernodal, 20, of Post Falls, and freshman Ethan Chapin, 20, of Mount Vernon, Washington. So some stuff has come out about Brian Koberger. I tried to find the stuff that was as factual as possible. I think a lot of people have come out of the woodwork. Somebody he went to high school with who said sometimes he was weird. Like, I don't give a shit. You know, the people that 2020 dig up who have something to say about him, that he was very disturbed somewhere. I just... Or all the articles that have been all over MSN, like, he came to the student union building and stared a lot. Yes. Yes. Okay. I don't care. Okay. There's weirdos everywhere. That means nothing to me. Yes. So I did try to find things that were factual that we could stick with. He's enough of a monster as it is. The Idaho Statesman this last week put out a very comprehensive, very good article. You guys should check it out about sort of the case up to now. And according to this article, Court records show Koberger is originally from Albrightsville, which is in the Poconos Mountains in Pennsylvania. He graduated from Northampton Community College in Pennsylvania with an associate's degree in psychology in 2018. Then he attended DeSales University in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he received a bachelor's degree in 2020 and a master's degree in criminal justice in May of 2022. At DeSales, he conducted a survey as part of a research project seeking information from people who had committed crimes. So this is where this survey came up. I think a lot of people thought it was something he was doing through Washington State, but it was actually a survey that he had put out while he was getting his master's degree at DeSales in Pennsylvania. So the the survey was that one where it said, did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? How did you leave the scene? I'm a fucking creeper and I want to know how your criminal brain works. A review of court records in Washington, Idaho, and Pennsylvania showed no criminal history for Koberger except for some traffic infractions. Koberger entered the program at WSU after he graduated from DeSales. He was hired as a TA, which is really typical in graduate programs, especially PhD programs. All of the TAs in whatever program you're in are graduate students. So that's pretty typical. It wasn't because he was special. It was just because that's what they do. Yeah, you're not special. Nope. So according to an article by the New York Times, Koberger displayed such troubling behavior in the weeks around the killings that his university investigated his conduct, particularly around women, 
counseled him over a verbal altercation with a professor and ultimately fired him from his job as a teaching assistant, according to interviews and a university record. He was fired before he was arrested, before any of this came to light, because he was such a freak. He began having trouble about a month into the fall semester. He had an altercation on September 23rd with John Snyder, the professor that he was TAing under. The Times previously reported that students had complained about Koberger's harsh grading in his TA role, resulting in a classroom discussion in which he sought to defend the feedback he provided the students. Records show that after the initial altercation with the professor, Koberger met with a university official to, quote, discuss norms of professional behavior. By October 21st, a professor emailed him about, quote, the ways in which you had failed to meet your expectations as a teaching assistant thus far in the semester. Then on November 2nd, department leaders met with Koberger to discuss an improvement plan. He was called to a meeting with faculty members to discuss growing concerns about his behavior, according to the record, a timeline the university prepared in justifying its decision to terminate him. The meeting was part of a series of discussions over Koberger's conduct during his criminology studies at WSU. The faculty's concerns with him grew in the weeks after the November 13th murders, though he had not yet been publicly identified as a suspect. The faculty made the decision at the department's end-of-year meeting in December, during which professors were also told that some female students reported that Koberger had made them feel uncomfortable. In one of those instances, Koberger was accused of following a female student to her car. In the case of the female students, the university investigation did not find Koberger guilty of any wrongdoing. And it was other matters that prompted the decision to eliminate his funding and remove him from the teaching assistant job. That decision, they said, was based on his unsatisfactory performance, including his failure to meet the, quote, norms of professional behavior in his interaction with the faculty. In the termination document, officials described a second altercation that he had with the same professor after the killings on December 9th. Later that month, the department decided to remove him from his position, cutting off his paying and saying that he had not made progress regarding professionalism. Phil Wheeler, the vice president and spokesperson for WSU, said a federal student privacy law prohibited him from commenting in detail on Mr. Koberger's history with the university. But the New York Times was able to get a copy of that letter, that termination letter that they had sent Koberger to his parents' house. Um, and that that is actually how they informed him that he had been terminated. And this was prior to him being arrested. So he was creepy even. Yeah. And I had read a couple of articles when he about him being a TA and how he was just kind of an arrogant know-it-all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Of course he was. Yeah. Okay, so the search warrant. A pair of search warrants were unsealed January 18th, revealing that on December 30th, police had seized over a dozen items from Koberger's apartment in Pullman, Washington, after law enforcement filed for the search warrants at Koberger's Washington State University housing and on-campus office, receiving a judge's approval on December 29th. 
From Koberger's apartment, police sought blood or items with blood, bodily fluids, or skin cells, knives, knife sheaths, and sales receipts for either, and possible photos of the U of I victims and the King Road House in Moscow where they were stabbed to death, according to records which were obtained by the Idaho statesman. According to Moscow Police Sergeant Dustin Blaker, the King Road residence contained a significant amount of blood from the victims, including splatter and cast-off. Cast-off is a bloodstained pattern resulting from blood drops released from an object due to its motion, which, he said, based on my training, makes it likely that this evidence was transferred to Koberger's person, clothing, or shoes. It is likely that he still had blood or other trace evidence on his person, clothes, or shoes, including skin cells or hairs from the victim's or Goncalves' dog, he added. Also seized from Koberger's apartment were a desktop computer tower, an Amazon Fire TV stick, a Walmart sales receipt, and two others from Marshall's department store and 13 possible hair strands, one possibly from an animal. The bedding police took included top and bottom of mattress cover, packaged separately, both labeled C. Multiple stains, one tested, and two cuttings from a reddish-brown stain on an uncased pillow with the larger stain also tested. A collection of dark red spots were seized as well, without testing, the records showed. In addition, police were looking for dark clothes, including shirts, pants, masks, and shoes with a diamond-patterned sole. In a probable cause affidavit unsealed on January 5th, investigators reported finding a latent shoe print with a diamond-shaped pattern similar to the that of a Vans-type shoe. No such items were located, according to the unsealed records. These murders appear to have been planned, rather than a crime in a moment of conflict, Blaker wrote. I believe it likely that Koberger planned his actions ahead of time. The plans may have included a review of other murders or violent assaults, stabbings, and or cutting of people, as well as how to avoid detection after the commission of such crimes. Investigators sought digital devices, including computers and cell phones, electronic data stored on memory drives, modems and routers, and GPS navigation tools. Mentioned specifically in the search warrant for Koberger's office, where he was a criminal justice and criminology PhD student, the police sought any photos of the victims, electronic records related to the King Road home, internet search history, and social media accounts and passwords, the records showed. At the ground-level office in Wilson Short Hall, he shared with two other department PhD students, no items were seized, according to the records. I just feel like if he was doing this much research, he did a really shitty job of executing everything he had learned. That's why it's so, this whole thing, I think, is such a mindfuck. Because yeah. he has all of this education, right? Now, he's not a dumb dumb. I mean, he is, but he's not... Yeah, but I also think what it is, is I think he's so fucking arrogant. Mm -hmm. It's just this, I mean, clearly he was in some form of mania or frenzy during the attacks and he fucked up, but I don't know. I, I really am curious. I mean, obviously we talked about this before. He would have been covered in blood, covered yes. in it, and it would have been all over his car. But I don't see him going home and laying down on his bed while he's covered in the blood of four people and like taking a nap. Yeah, no. It just, I, that even seems too stupid for him. Right. 
it, it will be interesting to see what kind of DNA they get back uh, from what they seized in his apartment. And I wonder if those receipts for like marshals and stuff is for a ski mask. You and know? a black turtleneck. Because of course <laughs> he would keep the receipts. <laughs> yeah, because of course he would. So let's talk about the thing that seems to be the most frustrating for a lot of people, which is the gag mm-hmm. order, mm-hmm. which I got to say, I don't find it frustrating. I think it was very smart because yes. the last thing that you want is for Koberger after he is found guilty, because I believe he will be to be able to appeal it because he didn't get a fair trial because people were popping off. Yes. No, I completely agree. I think that people are just nosy. We want the information. We want the details. It's in our DNA, but what they're doing is yeah. smart. In early January, a gag order was issued by Lata County Magistrate Judge Megan Marshall, preventing communication about the case from, quote, investigators, law enforcement personnel, attorneys, and agents of the prosecuting attorney or defense attorney. Now, this was updated on January 19th to include attorneys who are representing witnesses, victims, or victims' families from discussing the case, in addition to the parties that were already prohibited. More than two dozen news outlets, including the Idaho Statesman, have filed a petition with the Idaho Supreme Court to remove the order. So the reason the judge had to amend the gag order to include attorneys for the families was because specifically the attorney for the Goncalves family was on every news outlet. And the prosecutor's office and the judge were very concerned that it was going to create a situation in which he could absolutely say he w- there was no way he was going to get a fair trial. But this week, Koberger's attorneys objected to a motion from one of the victim's families to appeal the gag order in this case. The objection filed Thursday comes less than a week after Shannon Gray, who is the attorney representing the family of Kaylee Goncalves, filed a challenge in state court that said the gag order is too broad and places an undue burden on the families. In the motion to appeal, Gray said that the non-dissemination order, commonly known as a gag order, constitutes an intolerable prior restraint on free speech. The defense team, which is Kootenai County Public Defender Ann Taylor and Chief Deputy Litigator Jay Weston Logsdon, wrote in their objection to the family's appeal of the gag order that the U.S. Supreme Court has determined certain parties' First Amendment rights to free speech may be limited when exercising those rights would result in prejudice against the defendant. The objection also said Koberger has a right to a, quote, speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, which could be threatened by pretrial expression, which is people talking shit before the trial. In addition to the Goncalves family, a coalition of news organizations from around the region, including the Associated Press and the New York Times, is challenging the gag order, saying it violates the right to free speech. Meanwhile, Koberger remains in custody without bond at the Leyta County Jail and awaits a scheduled preliminary hearing on June 26th. I think, you know, people just don't understand everything that goes into a trial and trying somebody and defending somebody, but it's like that case. Oh my gosh. Which one was it that we were talking about? Anyway, he appealed it because 
the jurors had seen a a mugshot of him. Oh, it was, um, wasn't it Eric Virgil Hall? So, you know, I mean, he, he got an appeal based on the fact that the jury saw his mugshot from a previous crime. While, you know, it's a bunch of bullshit and he never got anywhere with it, it still puts the family through that whole rigmarole again, even yeah. if nothing yeah. comes from it. So as hard as it is to be patient and wait, it just. Well, and I think, too, it's like, guys, the Moscow PD. Prosecuting attorney. They all have worked so hard to make sure that they have everything lined up, right. that they didn't skip any steps, that they're not fucking around. So the last thing you want to do is create a situation where he has any wiggle room at all. Exactly. Exactly. So everybody just be quiet. You will have plenty of time to talk your ass off about this as much as you want on Fox News. But right now, just let it lie. Let it be, let it be, <laughs> let it be, let it be. I don't think I can go one whole episode without singing. That's all right. It's your thing. <laughs> People expect it. Now. Oh, God. Or they cringely await it. All right. So we are going to talk about the smoking gun or, in this case... The Smoking Sheath. That's right. That's right. By far, the strongest piece of evidence the state has against Coburger is the knife sheath. Police found a knife sheath. That's hard for me to say. Left uh. the, say that three times fast. Knife sheath, knife <laughs> sheath, knife sheath. No. Taken at the scene of the crime. According to the probable cause affidavit, DNA was taken from the knife sheath and sent to the Idaho State Laboratory along with trash obtained from Koberger's parents' house in Pennsylvania, where Koberger was arrested. When comparing the DNA found on the sheath to the DNA from the trash, test results identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect. Specifically, at least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. Investigators wrote in the affidavit. Yeah. So I think even if you throw out the cell phone data and the video surveillance and anything else, there is no way to explain away that sheath that they found in Maddie's room that had his fucking DNA on it. Right. Yeah. And a jury, a jury loves DNA. They love it. I mean, yeah. Well, and you know what I think is so funny about this? So he waived his right to a speedy trial, which is why they were able to put his preliminary hearing way the fuck out to June. But usually people do that so they have time to put their defense together. How are you going to defend this, sir? The DNA's wrong? That's what you're going to say? I don't know, but they'll come up with something. I'm interested to see what the defense is. I'm really interested to see what the defense is. 
Yeah, I was reading something this week about how they were saying that the cell phone tower stuff is not super accurate because, like, for example, a cell phone tower can cover a 30-mile radius. So it's not like a cell phone tower can tell you exactly where a person is. Fine. But it can tell you that his ass moved from Pullman to Moscow to Genesee back to Pullman in the middle of the night and then back to Moscow in the morning. The nearest cell tower closest to the King's Road residence. So, fine. But it shows a footprint. I don't need you to show me exactly where it is. We have video surveillance for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the, the case, they did a, a superb job yes, on laying this all out. So, that's why I think I'm so interested to see what the defense is going to be. Because it's hard. I mean, they pull so much out of thin air when doing defense sometimes that mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that they'll do the same here, but I'm very interested to see what it is. Well, and he also seems like the type of person who, even if the defense attorneys were like, dude, we can't defend this. There's, you need to take a plea deal. You need to plead guilty. Mm-hmm. He's not going to do that just so he can go through the process mm-hmm. right? just so he can see what, how this whole thing plays out and get his name in the books. I don't know. I think that's what's so strange about this whole thing. And I'm sure we'll find way more out as stuff comes out about it, but it's so strange to me that because it almost feels like, and we kind of said this in the last time we talked about it, it almost feels like for him, he was doing it out of curiosity to see what it would be like. And that's sort of what I feel like about the trial for him. He's going to go through it just for the experience. Yeah. Just to see what it would be like. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And I think he's just arrogant enough to think that he won't be convicted. (sighs) These poor families. Yeah. Yuck. Total yuck. Well, guys, We just wanted to give you a little Valentine's Day love, and we hope you have a really good day, even if you don't celebrate, even if you find people to be the worst. I hope you have the Valentine's Day you deserve. There you go. Don't have a good Valentine's Day if you're an asshole. We do not wish that. (laughs) Have the Valentine's you deserve. Yeah. TM, Ghosts and Garnets. (laughs) and if you deserve an early bed and a frozen pizza then that is good and if you deserve a romantical night out with your lover great too yeah you do you man no judgment either way we want to shout out our newest patron heather lauer thank you thank you thank you thank you and welcome Thank you, Heather. And if you guys would like to become a patron like Heather, you can subscribe to the show over on Patreon. There is a link in the show notes, which is the show notes is just the little description box underneath where you hit play and it will take you right to it. It says support the show. If you are interested in sponsoring the show or if you have a suggestion for an episode that you would like to hear in the future, please email us at ghostsandgarnets at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys tomorrow for your normally scheduled murder. See you tomorrow.